episode 179 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 23rd of May, 2022. I'm Joe, and with me are Fainim. Howdy. Graham. Hello, everyone. And Will. Good evening. Let's get straight on with our discoveries then. Fainim, what is Rust Desk? I help customers who are not beside me. Therefore, I use a remote solution to get to them. I have previously being a naughty, naughty boy and used TeamViewer until the fuckers blocked me for some reason. Like I kept reconnecting to the same host. And uh, I obviously swear that I wasn't using it for business purposes. So I said, ah, oh, sure, I'll look up a license. What what does it cost? And then I promptly closed that tab and never looked at it again and said, <laughs> I'll just SSH into their hosts and then do some sort of doohickey to get to VNC. Uh, Rust Desk is essentially TeamViewer. It's open source, GPL3. And if you, you can use their um, I don't know what they call them, rendezvous servers or whatever, where you can, you know, if you're both coming out through a firewall to link up to connections, you can go through theirs, which are free to use, or you can use your own. So you can set up completely on your own infrastructure and uh, happy days. And it works really well. Let me guess what you've done, Fabian. Run it on your own infrastructure? I haven't got around to doing the rendezvous, but it's this horrible NPM thing. Now, they do say you can completely write your own server. And think thinking about running JavaScript like that for that type of setup, I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I can just hack it together with a couple of net com- commands or whatever. I don't know. We'll see. But uh, it's pretty cool, and it works really nicely. The deb installs. There's different R- there's RPMs. There's a whole lot of things. It works on Mac, your Android for your phone or tablet. It's really, really good. I'm kind of surprisingly good, in fact. And it's completely open source then? Yeah, completely. That's why I was slightly dubious about this, because there's a lot of companies with the pandemic who are charging an awful lot for these things. Like the TeamViewer one is disturbing how expensive it is. Like if it was a reasonable price, you go, yeah, no problem. Maybe I'll do that. But no, it's just, it's stupid money. Graham, yours is Jellyfin, which uh, is an open source alternative to Plex. Yeah, so I've I don't know if we've chatted about this before, but I recently had cause to use it in anger properly. Um I got a bit fed up with Cody as my front end of my media collection. And so I I didn't want to use Plex, I don't like Plex. And so I thought I'd give Jellyfin a, a try running on a Raspberry Pi four. And so basically what it does is it's a it's a small server, it collates all of your media content, your movies and your music, all legally downloaded of course and then we'll serve this either through um, a web interface or to a client and i mean cl- close your ears failing but you can get like apps for android and you can also get them on like web os smart tvs <sighs> then it presents an interface just like netflix for example to all your content and the most important thing is is how well it streams that content. So if you've got HDR stuff, for example, 4K stuff, I've been able to try it with those things and it works absolutely brilliantly. I'm so impressed. It's so responsive. This is being served from a Raspberry Pi with a USB hard drive and you can use it on your phone um, and it's absolutely brilliant. I love it. And it's got a really good web interface as well. If you don't want to have to install some sort of application, you can just run it straight in the browser. The UI design, I love it. It's really minimal, keeps out the way, but it does everything that you need it to. It can do transcoding as well if you need it to, if the client doesn't support all of the same codecs. Probably not on a Pi, though. No, probably not on a Pi, but there is some hardware acceleration on the Pi that does work with Jellyfin, so I have enabled that, and I have got it to work with some of the stuff. It's totally dependent on the codecs being used, but you can use some of the 
hardware accelerated MPEG decoding, for example, on the Pi to be able to do that if you need to. And I'm really impressed. To me, anyway, I think I used Kodi for a long time, but this is just so much cleaner and just much more flexible and lighter as well on the Pi. Kodi's good, but it's a bit of a fuck about to set it up, I found. Like adding this shares and yeah. the interface is not very intuitive. The double config thing is the annoying bit, I find, where there's settings for the OS, inverted commas, and the GUI application, and they're not like joined together as just an extra tab. You'd never quite know where to go for things. Yeah, I agree. And, and it's not very logical if you've got some TV shows recorded or you've got some movies downloaded. And it takes quite a long time to update the media content, even when nothing's changed. And the plugin system is a bit like PPAs a lot of the time. And it's complicated. It's flexible, but I think it's feeling its age in terms of feature creep at the moment. And Jellyfin is very much the opposite of that. Are we going to get fully loaded Jellyfin boxes? <laughs> Maybe that's another good thing, you know, avoids all those plugins that people use for playing torrented streams. Um, I don't suppose you can do that with Jellyfin, and it's not something I use anyway. Do you know, can Jellyfin do TV recording? I've not tried it, but it says it can. Ooh, okay, I'm interested now. I don't know whether there's a back end, if you use TV head end or something like that, and it speaks right. to that, so I don't know, but it does say it on its feature list. Cool, because, I mean, that that's one of our use cases for Cody. Like, the TV is disconnected and old, and we have a Raspberry Pi hat that plugs into the Pi 4 that does a standard digital over-the-air uh, recording, so... Yeah, and I use TV head end as well for the same thing for a satellite feed. For and so I never have to touch it. That records stuff and drops it into a shared folder that uh, Jellyfin picks up. To be honest, I think that's even what Cody uses is TV head end. I don't touch it because I'm not allowed. I've only tried this briefly on a NUC. I think it's actually still running on that NUC that is just outside my door as I speak now, and I haven't bothered uninstalling it. But in my brief testing, it worked absolutely brilliantly. So uh, it gets the thumbs up from me. Yeah, and what I, I think I've mentioned it, but what I really like is that it doesn't touch the media codecs. I have a weird system where the audio is passed through to a surround sound system with an optical cable. It does all that without touching anything, and it's it just works. Will, what's Virtual Smart Home? I've got a feeling I've talked about this very briefly in the past, but I wanted to touch on it in a bit more depth today. Virtual Smart Home is a Node-RED add-on or plug-in or whatever they call it, and it allows you to interface with your Alexa devices without having to write any code. So if you have ever tried to write an Alexa skill, it's not difficult. It's quite well documented, but it is a faff keeping it up to date. And Virtual Smart Home takes away all of the pain and just exposes very, very simple devices within Node-RED, which you can command over Alexa to do all of the normal things that you want to do, such as switch on and off, but it also supports all of the complicated stuff like setting brightness or setting color or setting a percentage for a device that, that maybe, you know, opens and closes via degrees. And uh, Virtual Smart Home abstracts all of the Alexa complicatedness and presents it as a very straightforward device in Node-RED that you can then weave into your other smart home scripts or activities or tasks or whatever it is that you want to do. You can get access to the really complicated stuff that Alexa provides, but without having to write any code and therefore not have to maintain any code, which is the real bane of Alexa skills for me is that you write it once and then... Some years later, the API gets retired and you have to rewrite it. And then they change the version of Python and you have to rewrite it again. 
and I'm done with all of that sort of rewriting stuff. I cannot be bothered anymore. And Virtual Smart Home gives me exactly what I want without having to write any code. And presumably this ties in with your coloured LEDs and stuff that you were talking about previously. Yes, exactly that. It, it presents all of that sort of um, that ability to control colours and, and brightnesses. It does it really, really nicely. I imagine that Phelim's spidey senses are tingling here. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, if you are uh, invested in the Alexa ecosystem, you can host Virtual Smart Home yourself. You can run it in AWS. You can run it on your own servers. The code is all there. You can do it yourself. But this guy operates it for you for free. Now, he could go away tomorrow and all of your stuff would stop working. But you do have the code there. You can host it yourself. Open the garage bay doors. <laughs> what he can't do, however, is see your devices and interact with your devices. You log into this thing using your Amazon account. So if you've got an Alexa, you've already got an Amazon account. You log in with your Amazon account. It does, you know, one of these sort of federated login things. So he does not have access to your devices. Uh, he can see how often his scripts are being triggered, but he can't see what's going on. So privacy is protected that way. But hey, if you've got Alexa in your house, you don't care about privacy anymore anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. So in summary, if you've got smart home devices that you have got some hacked up scripts you cobble together to interact with Alexa, then I would suggest check out Virtual Smart Home, get rid of your crafty scripts, get rid of the maintenance burden, let this guy do it for you, and uh, maybe slip him a few quid via GitHub as well for the pleasure. That's genuinely a good find, Will, um, because I use a thing called HA Bridge to add custom mm. devices to the same thing, and it's limited because it kind of emulates the Philips Hue Bridge yep. protocol. Yep. So it's kind of only on and off. But this sounds exactly what I need for more kind of complicated interaction without having to get too deep into it. Yeah, and it's it's dead easy to set up Node-RED on a Raspberry Pi. You install this one plugin and, and you're away. And I already have Node-RED running anyway, so... Yeah, even better. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. Go to K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux to sign up today. Collide sends employees important, timely and relevant security recommendations for their Linux, Mac and Windows devices right inside Slack. Collide is perfect for organizations that care deeply about compliance and security, but don't want to get there by locking down devices to the point where they become unusable. Instead of frustrating your employees, Collide educates them about security and device management while directing them to fix important problems. Collide helps deal with some of the many issues that are not solved by locking down devices, like instructing developers to set passphrases on unencrypted SSH keys, finding plain text two-factor backup codes and teaching end users how to store them securely, and convincing employees to uninstall evil browser extensions that may sell their browser history. You can try Collide with all its features on an unlimited number of devices, free for 14 days, no credit card required. Try it out at collide.com slash late night Linux. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash late night Linux. Okay, my discovery is that Thunderbird is very much alive and well. So recently they've hired Jason Evangelo, who I used to do Choose Linux with, as a kind of community person and so far, he has just been tweeting up a storm about how great it is. And in one of these tweets, he says that Thunderbird has more than 20 million users worldwide. And in 2021, it received $2.7 million in donations. And I knew it wasn't dead, but that seems to be a bit healthier than I thought. So that's good news, really. And another tweet of his about it is RSS feeds. He's become obsessed with RSS feeds. 
And I had no idea that you could use Thunderbird as an RSS feed reader. I suppose in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense, but I tried it out and it's pretty good. It doesn't easily integrate with Feedly, so it's not that useful to me. But if you don't rely on a service like Feedly and just have an OPML file and uh, you know can manage all the syncing yourself between machines, then it's a pretty solid choice, I think, for an RSS reader as well as email. Yeah, the people that I know that do use Thunderbird have done so for a very long time and swear that it is still a very, very good email client. Well, my ulterior motive for mentioning this is that my dad uses Thunderbird. Oh, is this not the 32-bit thing? Yeah, I upgraded him to Windows 10 from 7, and um, in order to get his scanner software working nicely, I had to use the 32-bit version of Thunderbird because he's just not willing to learn any concepts or anything new. He he will learn a process, and step by step, it has to be exactly the same. You're making a lot more sense now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I want Thunderbird to survive and thrive, so everybody use it, especially the 32-bit version, so they don't drop that, (laughs) so that I don't have a massive fucking headache to deal with. On to a bit of admin. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can learn more at latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux After Dark, and Linux Downtime. And if you want to get in contact, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do some feedback then. The first one is from Lilith. So, you start with the Unity revival, then segue into lamenting young people's lack of interest into computing, without pointing out that Rudra Saraswat, creator of the aforementioned Unity respin, is 13 years old. Legit question, did I miss something quite possible, or are you trolling listeners? No, I knew that he was 13, but I had totally forgotten. So, that is a link that we should have definitely made. And uh, Lilith, you should take over producing this show, clearly. <laughs> yeah, he's amazing. And he's doing so many projects as well at the same time, doing great work. And you're right. Perfect example of us being wrong. Yeah. So Alex says, in a posh English accent, two-year convert is proper unreliable-like. <laughs> I heard you guys talk about this, but you should know it will work one week and then the next, when it's been patched, it won't. Well, that's not my experience. Two-year convert only works on certain firmware versions that ship with uh, with these plug devices. Two-year or whoever it is that makes the, the original software has tried to prevent two-year convert from working, and they've had a couple of goes at this, and the last one seemed to have been successful at blocking it. But if you buy the right devices, and there is a wiki page on the 2 Convert webpage, which will tell you exactly which devices work and which ones don't, if you buy the right devices, 90% of the time it works every time. It seems a bit of a missed opportunity by these companies that they could actually just get on board. I mean, maybe they don't like it, but could they not just say, well, we'll get a whole lot of sales from these people who also like to do this thing, and we don't have to support them? Well, yes, I, I think this is a bit of a strange situation because every device that they ship has a cost involved, right? That They have to talk to it at the back end. They have to maintain its state in a database somewhere. And it may not be a very large cost, but it's a cost nonetheless. And every device that gets converted away from that code base suddenly is not, you know, it's not something they need to manage anymore. So there must be some inherent value in the data that they have about that device, where it is, what its IP address is. Maybe it's 
sniffing your network. Who knows? But there must be some inherent value in that device being on your network and running their firmware, because otherwise, why would they go to such lengths to block you from doing that? Perceived potential value, perhaps. Mm. They might not actually have any use for that data, but there's this perception that all data is valuable, maybe. Don't know about you, but I'm always changing my plugs and my walls. Jesus. <laughs> well, Alex is supposed to be an expert on this stuff, so uh, maybe you'll have to go on his show and tell him he's wrong. And we've got a message from Joe. Not me. <laughs> not, not this Joe. I heard the last episode about weird platforms running Linux, with the author mentioning the Surface 7. Surface products have quirks, but it seems a good number of people are making the attempt to run Linux on them. I've been using the Surface Laptop Go for a while, and it's pretty good. Battery life isn't great, particularly Linux suspend time, but it's very snappy for a low-cost, lightweight device. Currently running Ubuntu Mate 2204, which has gotten very smooth thanks to all the work of Mr. Wimpress and his team. A note is the battery, strangely enough, needed kernel 5.13 or higher to register. And another tip, check Geekbench 5 search results for Surface, Linux, and a lot of results come up. Won't necessarily account for touch compatibility, but can be useful to see if it's possible to run Linux on the device decently. That's a good tip about Geekbench, actually. I've not thought about that, looking at Geekbench for devices to see if people have got Linux running on it. It seems like just fighting a losing battle, though, buying a Surface to run Linux on it. It's like buying a Chromebook specifically to run Linux. I mean, you can, but why would you? Or a MacBook Air, Joe. Uh, (laughs) I I, I did that uh, for science. (laughs) I do agree, but you can sometimes pick up bargains like this, and some of the devices are beautiful and lightweight and very portable. If you can, please support a Linux producer of hardware. Yeah, or buy something that you just know Linux will work on. But I suppose Linux is about choice. We talked about that last week. And that is a good tip about Geekbench. So thanks, Joe. Michael writes in and says, Probably the strangest or most pointless device I've ever run Linux on was a Sega Dreamcast. You needed a CD that essentially had a bootloader. Then you'd hot swap to a CD with your Linux setup and all your apps and files. If I remember correctly, the only real use was to run an emulator to play old Sega and Nintendo games. I guess this was 1998 or 99. A lot of fun back then for me was the challenge of getting Linux to run on something new. That reminds me of an original PlayStation having to have a spring thing to make it think that the disk (laughs) drawer thing was closed. And then you'd load one disk in and then quickly swap that out for your copied disk that uh, you'd backed up from the game that you'd bought, definitely, and not rented from Blockbuster or anything. And that just reminds me of that, having to swap things around. It seems like an awful fuck about. Also reminds me of the fact that the PlayStation 3 could run Linux, the early versions mm. of it, the big fat one, um, mm. the Yellow Dog Linux. I did do that. It was really good. Actually, PlayStation 2 could run Linux too. Yeah, it mm. did, didn't it? Yeah. Hang on a minute, I've got a keyboard from a PlayStation 2 in my drawer. Because <laughs> uh, my wife bought one back in the day. I think she was trying to impress me. It worked. But Matt wins the prize. He says, The weirdest thing I've ever installed Linux on was the command and control PC that ran the SCADA system for a 35 million US dollar dewatering plant for a sludge company I worked for, aka a poop recycling company. Some critters got into the ancient CNC machine, and the manufacturer wanted several million dollars to replace it and upgrade the software. I MacGyvered a replacement for a few hundred dollars, installed Ubuntu, and was able to run all the ancient software via Wine. I'm still friends with some folks at that company, 
and that machine is still humming along problem-free. So if you live in Hawaii, just know that somewhere your poop is being recycled by Linux. Excellent. Yeah, brilliant. I wish we could uh, play royalty music and we could put like Fate and Wars. We care a lot on for that. That sounds like micro on Discovery, you know, dirty jobs. Presumably anyone who's visited Hawaii as well has had their shit dealt with by <laughs> Linux. So that is... Uh, <laughs> That, that is just brilliant. You've definitely won the prize there, Matt. Well done. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. And we have a, a message from Gabe. Your podcast was suggested to me as somebody who might be interested in Owncast. It's an open source, free live video streaming platform, kind of like a self-hosted Twitch or YouTube live. It can be used as the infrastructure for any internal live video streaming requirements or as a public live streaming platform for people who want more freedom and flexibility than the big tech options can offer. If you ever get a chance to check it out or mention it to your listeners, it would be very cool. Let me know if you have any feedback or questions. I had a brief look at the website and I think it's uh, MIT licensed and it seems to be totally open source and it's not some cash grab. So that's why I thought, well, we'll give it a mention. We're not going to endorse it. We have no idea whether it's utterly shit or amazing. <laughs> but uh, either way, everyone check it out and, uh, and let us know what you think. You're welcome, Gabe. <laughs> <laughs> and can I have my Steam Deck now, please? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Stop wasting time on video streaming. I want one too. <laughs> I bet he's heard that so many times. <laughs> <laughs> Pear wrote in to say, I have a second old laptop that has some missing keys on its keyboard, teething puppies, and now I wonder how to use it as a second screen to my main laptop, preferably by using an Ethernet cable between the two. I have seen a hack using virtual screens and VNC, but I wonder if there's a better way that works with Wayland for future-proofing. This is one of our previous finds. It was um, Barrier, which was uh, like a, a new version of an old piece of software called Synergy, which basically you run the client and the server, and then when you move the mouse to the side of, the, the side of one screen, it moves on to the next, and, and the client on that machine takes over. So you just use one keyboard and mouse to control two computers, like a KVM, but in software. That's definitely the answer to that problem. It works really well. Um, and as I said in that uh, Discovery episode, um, I use it to link two or three machines together sometimes. But the problem with that is that you're going to have to run an operating system on the machine we're talking about here. It's not just a dumb screen that you can drag Windows onto. Yeah, but I don't think there's an answer unless, you know, by plugging in a USB-C cable on something, it knows how to act as a, a monitor, which I don't know any devices that can do that. Yeah, so you're going to have to set it up with a USB keyboard. Yeah, you could probably set something up to, I, I don't know, but something to set up a running SSH, you know, without having to interact with it too much. You know, like you used to be able to on Ubuntu, 
but I don't know anymore. I've not done anything like that for a long time. So Jonathan writes in, just dropping in to ask for some advice on where to share a useful LibreOffice calc spreadsheet I created. Basically, it helps you keep track of watching the IMDb Top 250 films, you lucky bastard with your free time. (laughs) You receive a tally of the films that you've seen and how many you have left. There's also a cell with a random film to watch next out of the films you have not seen. I also wrote a Python script which uses the free IMDb API to refresh the list with the latest Top 250 when you're done with the original list of films. I've shared this around with a number of film buff friends of mine, all of whom really liked it, which got me thinking that I should upload it somewhere for general use. However, I have never had my projects public before, so I'm not sure where to begin. Would something like this be appropriate for GitHub? Any advice would be much appreciated. I think GitHub's a really good place to put this. You can host your code there for free. People can download it. They can offer changes and fixes, which you can merge in if you want to. You can host your documentation there. You can have people to have discussions there. I think it gives you everything you need uh, for free. Is it just me, though? A spreadsheet is not the optimal way to share this. And somehow using that same logic that created the spreadsheet in some sort of HTML or JavaScript to make a web page would be far more useful to more people. Kind of, but he has already done it. Mm. And the worst thing is re-engineering a problem from the ground up because of the technology. We are slightly guilty of this all the time. Mm. While I think that you're probably right, Joe, that this would be better as a website, I think that... A spreadsheet is a fine tool, and it's something which is available to, or accessible, I should say, to a lot more people than, for example, writing a Python script or hosting a web server or anything like that. You're right, it would be more accessible to users through a website, but you could probably host it on GitHub. You could probably host the website and use GitHub Actions and things like that, or I'm sure GitLab offer similar things, to host a website on one of these sites as well. All I can see is the pair of you two with your Alan Partridge gifts speaking into a dictaphone. Idea for website. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. I wonder if you could just host it on Google Docs, maybe. I know that's going to make failing shrinking horror, but uh, maybe that is the easiest way to do it. Just have a shared spreadsheet that anyone can access who has the URL. And then you could just maybe do some DNS hackery, just buy a domain and point it at that spreadsheet. It'll probably exceed the Google Terms of Service in terms of number of users pretty quickly if it takes off. But that's probably the easiest way to make it public. Yeah, that's a very, very good idea. Um, The other thing to explore would be something like Google App Script, where you can write something in a sort of JavaScript-like language, which is pretty easy to understand. Um, and then you can interact dynamically with things like spreadsheets, have it update itself automatically from the IMDB uh, API and update that spreadsheet directly. So that's probably worth uh, taking a look at. That's great. Yeah, I think we should offer even less free responses to this. <laughs> yeah. Have you thought about doing it in Microsoft Office 365? <laughs> front page could be uh, a good alternative. Oh, my God, front page. <laughs> Jesus. While Falium has a point, 
I think that it's a bullshit point. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's me told. Fuck that. <laughs> the source of this will all be open. This software is free to use. Uh, Google are providing it through the goodness of their own hearts and for no other reason than that. <sighs> oh, yeah. Such saints. The, but, you know, why not exploit this? They're, they're willing to give you free server time and all the tools are there. Why not exploit it? Yeah, and IMDb is owned by Amazon and stole everybody's community <laughs> built reviews. Yeah, and shut down the forums and didn't even shut them down read only. They just deleted the fucking <laughs> database. Bastards. IMDb used to be good. <laughs> well, if anyone else has got ideas for Jonathan, then do let us know. Show at latenightlinux.com. But with that, we better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when we'll probably be talking about what's been going on in the Linux and open source news, but maybe not because it's summer and there's not much going on, but we'll see. Anyway, until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.